Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Sunday, September the 10th, 2023. Longtime viewers, regular viewers of the show know we've been doing a lot of shows on the history of social media. And if there is an authority on social media, particularly uh, the younger generation, it's my guest today. Taylor Lorenz is a very well-known journalist. In fact, uh, one person described her as the Bob Woodward of the TikTok generation. And speaking of uh, Bob Woodward uh, and Nixon, we did a show earlier. All the President's Men was, of course, Woodward's famous book uh, on Watergate. Taylor Lorenz has her own uh, new book out. It's called Extremely Online, the untold story of fame, influence and power on the Internet. And I'm thrilled and honored that Taylor is joining us today from Los Angeles, just down the coast in California. Uh, Taylor. Do you remember the first time you heard the term social media? Um, I don't really remember the specific time, but I remember the first time I sort of started to learn about it, which was in college, because I got to college and Facebook launched. So I, I just remember hearing about this thing called Facebook and people started talking about sort of the social web. So what was that about 2006? I think this was like 2004. 2005 because I went to University of Colorado and that was one of the right after they let the Ivy League schools on they added a bunch of state schools and University of Colorado was one of the state schools so it was it was one of the earliest um, schools allowed on the app and allowed on the platform and I just remember being excited about that I was a uh, and I'm dating myself here I was a internet uh, entrepreneur back in the 90s and everyone talked about extremely online and being online and all the rest of it do you think that social media existed before quote unquote social media was was the internet always social even before facebook and twitter and youtube oh yeah definitely i mean i think i i think there was a, obviously a lot of precursors to these social giants we have today i talk in the book about sort of the rise of blogging as a social medium and sort of being able to build and collaborate and network with each other and then you know you had really early social networks in the 90s like the globe or six degrees i mean i think the whole point of the internet like the whole reason we have it is to connect people and so I don't think it's just social media. I think it's the internet itself. Like that's its core value proposition. So you first came across social media when you were at college in maybe 2004 or five when yeah. you went on Facebook. Do you remember what your initial reaction was? Were you excited by it? Was it something amazing or was it just one more website? I was really excited about it. It was like the coolest thing. I just remember you could add, you could find everyone in your classes. And, you know, when you're starting college, it's very overwhelming. And um, I went to, like I said, I went to this really big state school with 35,000 kids. So you could, yeah, you could really easily find people in your classes. You could look up people if you had a crush on them in the dorm, you know, you could kind of see what classes they were in. And it was, I mean, it was so popular. Like Facebook was so popular. <laughs> I know one of the websites, uh, sort of post-Facebook perhaps, uh, 
that got you interested in social media was Tumblr. Do you remember your first experience of that? And how was Tumblr different from Facebook? Well, so Facebook was all, and I talk about this in my book, Facebook was, and I never had a MySpace, which a lot of people had before Facebook, but Facebook was really focused on IRL connections. So it was very weird to add people if you didn't know them or have some sort of physical connection with them. And Tumblr, what I loved about Tumblr, so after I graduated in, in 2009, I was I had been working temp jobs and I got introduced to Tumblr from a colleague. And um, what I loved about Tumblr is it was totally, it was, it was very pseudonymous. It was not based on your real identity at all. And um, you could connect over sort of similar interests. And so I got very into Tumblr and the blogging world at that point. Of course, you're on Twitter. Now you have a, a huge following, over 345,000 followers. Uh, you joined in October 2010. Uh, do you remember your first tweet? Yeah, um, I really only joined Twitter to keep up with friends from Tumblr because a lot of people on Tumblr were also pretty into Twitter. So I thought, okay, I guess I'll just join Twitter to keep up with people from Tumblr. But did you see something different in Twitter and Tumblr and Facebook? Mm -hmm. Did they all seem distinctive? To me, Twitter and Tumblr seemed very similar um, at the time. It's hard to remember because Tumblr, it, that's sort of those glory days of Tumblr were so long ago. But at the time, Tumblr was actually a place for real-time news. Um, and you had tons of news organizations, NPR, Newsweek. They had people running their Tumblrs, updating it with up-to-the-minute news information in this reverse chronological feed. So Tumblr was always this place for breaking news, for media discussions, for pop culture discussions. And actually, I think Twitter was very similar. Ultimately, actually, Tumblr sort of atrophied and Twitter completely became that place. Um, but Tumblr was kind of that place early on um, when Twitter was still kind of ascendant. Facebook was always for kind of friends and connections and personal connections. And I, I write about this in the book. It actually took them quite a while to break out of that sort of IRL model of social media. And that's why you haven't really seen any big content creators, for instance, emerge out of Facebook. It's very rare. It's hard to build audiences on there. Um, but I loved, I mean, I, you know, Twitter, I don't use it for tech news anymore. I really don't. I, because of, it, you know, with the Elon Musk takeover, it's just not useful. I mostly just used it to keep up with sort of like COVID information, but I used to really use t Twitter for tech news. It was where all the breaking tech news would happen and you could have these discussions and reach people. And it was so great. You also write about YouTube. Uh, YouTube is of course, a video site. Many people see it as social media. How does YouTube fit into this, this social media jigsaw of Tumblr and Twitter and Facebook and then, of course, Instagram? Yeah, I think, you know, YouTube was sort of TikTok before TikTok in the sense that it really blended social media and entertainment. So it was obviously it's sort of a social platform in that you can like, like follow, engage, share, you know, and all of that build an audience, but it's also more of an entertainment platform, as you mentioned, because of the focus on video, people are really programming specific shows. And I talk about the rise of sort of vlogger culture and the types of entertainment and content that the platforms rewarded over time. Um, I, I only just launched my YouTube channel again. I kind of quit YouTube a while ago and then never really posted on there. It's always been the one I've neglected because it's traditionally been the one that requires the most work. You know, like you have to, it's, it's hard to produce a compelling video, especially like someone like me, I'm more of a writer. So I prefer the text-based platforms. What's the difference between logging and blogging? 
you said logging and blogging. Yes. Yeah. Well, I would say logging is maybe more just documenting things. Blogging. I mean, what I loved about blogging when you when you used to, and I don't know that this is as true anymore, but when I started to come up as a blogger, there was this real distinct like blogger culture and it was very anti-corporate media. It was very like voicey and fun. And it was sort of this like freewheeling um side of media of course it all ended up getting co-opted by traditional media and a lot of us ended up in traditional media even though we were sort of anti that when we were younger but um yeah blogging was more like fun and and kind of um just didn't abide by the same kind of strict rules um that a lot of like traditional papers did just in terms of like voice and tone and stuff like that so that's kind of what blogging meant to me. I think now blogging probably means something a little bit different. And it just means sort of publishing text online. Taylor, you got your first job as a, a social media editor at the Daily Mail. Yeah. You must have been one of the first social media editors. How'd you get that job? I was. I was. I mean, I they didn't have anyone doing social before me. And I was part of this generation of... Um, people that entered into the newsroom through that way. I got the job because I ended up getting in touch with the publisher. The Daily Mail has always been my favorite website to check. I just, I love tabloid news, like celebrity news. And so I would go to the Daily Mail. And by the way, the Daily Mail in the US has a very different, um, sort of a different perception than the UK. Like it's more of a tabloid here, I would say, like celebrity news. And um, so, yeah, I was got in touch with the publisher through a, a mutual connection of this guy, Rob Fishman, who he had known him somehow or knew someone that worked there through Huffington Post. I don't know. But basically I got in the room with the publisher of the Daily Mail, who's also the editor in chief. And I was like, you don't understand. Facebook is going to be huge. <laughs> like you need to have a presence on the internet. Like give me a chance, please give me this job. And like, I promise you, I will make the Daily Mail all over the internet. And it did, obviously it was very easy to do that job in a lot of ways, but um, yeah. So he hired me and I was the first ever social person at that company. Not the last, though. No, now they have a whole team. And I built I built that team, by the way. Like, I mean, I hired, I think it was over a dozen people beneath me. And I I was the youngest woman in senior management in the entire company. Um, and I was running social feeds. I was running a global social team. And it was all, it was, it was me and a lot of other young internet people. It was such a unique time in media because, you know, entering into digital media in the early 2010s, millennials at that time, like, it was very easy to like rise the career ladder because nobody knew what they were doing. And, you know, you could get Facebook traffic. That's when Facebook was still sending traffic to publishers. And so the bosses at the companies were like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Like, you know, these like 20 something year olds are really good at navigating the internet and giving us a ton of traffic. So I guess we should, you know, build teams around them and give them money. And so, yeah, it's a good entryway into media. Your book, Extremely Online, is a, is your own rather personal history of social media. Uh, as you say, you worked at the Mail, Daily Mail, as the, so the first, probably the first job that anyone had as a social media editor between 2011 and 14. Was this a, a, a critical period? Was this when social media became real? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the early 2010s were when social media really began to shape culture and politics and obviously like the internet has been affecting all of these things since the dawn of the internet but 
social media in the early 2010s was like the oh. sort of that breakthrough moment. And so if you were in a job, you know, in that realm, I think it was very easy to like exert power online. Um, but yeah, and you have to think about too, that's when a lot of these platforms scaled, right? Instagram launched actually in 2010, Pinterest launched in 2011, um, Twitter launched 2007, but it didn't really take off until the early 2010s in terms of like the way that people were talking about it, right? We had the Arab Spring, we had all of this like sense of possibility. This was pre-Cambridge Analytica, pre-understanding of all the bad side of social media. There was a lot of optimism um, and a lot of sort of seminal internet moments on online. So I think that was very much like the dawn of the social, well, the true dawn of the social web was the aughts, but it was sort of like the coming of age, I guess, of social media. You mentioned Instagram. I mean, of course, Instagram wasn't always owned by Facebook. What was distinct about Instagram? Did it capture the spirit of social media? Yeah. You know, what was so interesting about Instagram is it really mainstreamed digital photography. Like prior to Instagram, you wouldn't, it was sort of digital photography was seen as secondary to physical sort of like camera photography. And Instagram imposed all of these really interesting restrictions to try and make each sort of digital picture that you would post to the app really beautiful and artful and kind of its own art form. And it became this kind of like you had all these like visual tropes within Instagram, early Instagram photos. Um, but it really taught people to post and to take, you know, to take photos of everything around them and document their lives and catalog their lives in this no way. Content could be oh my God. On the screen. That's Instagram, Taylor. <laughs> my phone. I don't know what that was Siri or something. Oh my God. They're listening to me. Um, but yeah. Uh, yeah. I think Instagram taught us all, you know, sort of mainstream that behavior of photographing everything. You mentioned that that period between 2010 and 2000 12 or 13 or even 14 was a period of great possibility of optimism of the Arab Spring. It was also, of course, the time when Barack Obama was president of the United States. Do you look back at that period now with a degree of nostalgia, of innocence? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone was delusional about maybe what the internet would eventually become, or I think everybody's mind was so clouded with optimism. I was, I was actually just talking to somebody else, a man who's worked in tech for like 40 years and he was telling me about the 90s and just like how you was that um it was the host of twit tv um i was just went on twit it's this week in tech um i don't know if you've ever watched that yeah show. who was it it was oh my gosh wait what's his name again hold on hold on i don't want to get his name wrong he's iconic wait what's his name Leo, Leo, Leo Laporte. Yes, I couldn't yeah, remember. Just up the road in Petaluma. Yeah, Leo. Yeah. Anyway, Leo was mentioning. Um, he was just mentioning, like in the '90s, there was this like utopianism around around the internet and sort of what people thought. And I, I don't. I was still kind of a kid in the '90s, so I don't remember that. But I do remember the optimism of sort of the late aughts and early 2010s and the social internet and kind of. People thought it would be this real democratizing, amazing force, and it has been in so many ways, but obviously we're so acutely aware of the downsides right now. Um, so yeah, it's just interesting to hear people's perspectives. We are talking with uh, Taylor Lawrence, who is the author of a new book, Extremely Online. She is the Bob Woodward of the TikTok generation. She doesn't look like Bob Woodward, but she is the Bob Woodward. 
Um, we're going to take a short break now, Taylor. I, I want to remind everyone uh, of the sponsor of this show, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. I'm going to run a short ad. And after the break, I want to begin talking about the, the darkening of the skies over social media and understand from you what happened after about 2012, 2013. So we'll be back in a couple of seconds with Taylor Lorenz, the author of Extremely Online. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can check out more about Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. And uh, all our guests are going to receive a free annual subscription, Taylor. So I'll have to get your address uh, afterwards. So, Taylor, um, social psychologists, researchers have found that in about 2012, suddenly everyone's anxiety rose dramatically, particularly young women. And some people like Jonathan Haidt and others have connected this with the rise of social media. For you, as someone very much on the front lines, as an activist, as a reporter, did you see it in around 2012? Did you begin to sense that things were out of control? It was like a party that began well and suddenly things got out of hand. Yeah, I think there was a marked shift on the internet between 2012 and 2014 and into 2015, obviously 2016, like 2012 was sort of the beginning of a lot of, of sort of the end of that optimistic era. Um, I think, I mean, the 2012 election was crazy. Um, and there was like sort of signs of toxicity and just sort of this like, um, these like mobs online, right? You started to sort of see this like mob behavior and, and you started to see examples of misinformation spreading online, but it was all very small and contained and still kind of on the fringes. Um, and then of course, in 2014, you had Gamergate, which was also a watershed moment in online culture. And I talk about this too, which was this sort of coordinated harassment campaign against specific women in video game journalism and women in the video games industry. And you yourself were somehow involved in that. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I actually don't cover gaming, but I, yes, I have been targeted by those same <laughs> people uh, because of my affiliation with a lot of people that were writing about games and are prominent feminists online. I'm very outspoken about my values online. So yeah, I mean, I, that's definitely like when things started to sort of cracks started to show right in this facade that everyone had and these notions of wait these these apps might not just be for the public good you know they can be weaponized and they can be weaponized in really dangerous ways um so yeah that that time period is when you start to see that shift the subtitle of your new book extremely online is the untold story of fame influencer and power on the internet do you remember when you first heard the term influencer, who invented that word? Yeah, well, it's actually, yeah, the subtitle is fame, influence and power on the internet. I didn't want to put the word influencer in no, there. No, I understand. But of course, influencer has become a, 
a very, excuse the pun, influential word these days. So I, I wonder who, who invented the term influencer? Well, I, I actually mentioned this. I've written about this. I, it's kind of mentioned in my book, but I should have got, I, I, you know, I could get, you could talk about this forever. But, um, you know, the, the word influencer is, is a marketing industry term, and it's been a marketing industry term for decades. Um, they've always had sort of influencer marketing, which was notable. I actually write, do write about this in the book of like this notion of connector moms or, um, you know, people that are influential in certain areas or certain communities or subgroups. That's always been a thing in marketing. And it wasn't until Vine died and you started to see these multi-platform content creators Prior to Vine died in, dying in twenty, really twenty sixteen. Remind everyone, Taylor, what Vine was, because not everyone will know. Vine was a short form video app that was incredibly popular. It was owned by Twitter. It was real. It was the first sort of short form mobile video editing app. It was like TikTok before TikTok. So in the first half of the twenty tens, when you saw the social media um, content creator info, uh, ecosystem emerge. Everyone was defined by their platform. So you had YouTubers, you had Tumblr creators, you or Tumblr, they actually people called them like Tumblr celebrities um, or Tumblr bloggers or Twitter, you know, you were Twitter famous or you were an Instagrammer. But people use this very platform specific language. You were a Viner. Now, a couple things happened in 2015 and 2016. One, tons of marketing dollars started to pour into the content creator ecosystem. So suddenly, a lot of uh, sort of terms in the content creator ecosystem were shaped by the language of marketing. And that's where that term influencer comes from. And there was no term that was a platform agnostic term. The term creator at the time was still synonymous with YouTube because YouTube called their YouTubers creators. So they didn't use the term influencer or anything else. And if you called yourself a creator, it was understood that you were a YouTuber. So basically um, all these marketing dollars are coming in. And with the death of Vine, you started to see this emergence of these new multi-platform creators. So no longer were content creators constrained to one platform or dependent on one platform. They started to think, oh, wait, this whole ecosystem is unstable. The app that I'm on now that I built millions of followers on could go away tomorrow. I better diversify. And so what do you call a content creator that's an Instagrammer, a YouTuber, and a Viner, and on Facebook video? There was no name. There was no sort of like agreed upon name for that. So everyone relied on this term influencer, which is from the marketing industry, because at the time, the marketing industry, that's when influencer marketing started to skyrocket. And that's the terminology that they would use in these contracts was influencer. So that's where that term took off from. Uh, the, the subtitle, as I said, is the untold story of fame, influence and power on the Internet. There's always been fame, Taylor, even before the Internet, although sometimes it's hard to imagine a world before the Internet. What's different about fame online well, and particularly fame associated with social media? Yeah. So what my book talks about is this complete um, reinvention of what fame was, you know, prior to the Internet and the really the rise of social media. Obviously, there were famous people, but fame itself wasn't this sort of commodity in the same way. Um, and it was it was much harder to attain. There was a much clearer delineation between who was famous and who was not famous. Now with the internet, we have niche fame, micro fame, you're sort of like fame, everyone is famous to a certain amount of people online, because we all have, I mean, theoretically, an audience or followers, or, you know, even if it's just our community, right, everyone has sort of like these levels of fame. So my book is very much about the transformation of fame from this 
old notions of fame and celebrity to new notions of fame and celebrity. And I talk about actually like not just the, so not just social media doing that, but actually the reality TV boom of the, you know, 2010s and how that changed the notion of like, who was a TV star. Right. And, um, so yeah, it's, it's a lot about sort of the evolution of fame and entertainment. Is much of this new fame bound up with its, and I excuse this word, it's an internet word, monetization? Yes, yes. I mean, I would say like, what's very different about fame now too is the way that you can monetize it. It used to used to sort of fame was something that was bestowed on you when you were part of a movie or a TV project or something. It wasn't something that people necessarily like, unless you were an actor, maybe went out and really cultivated, you know, somewhere every day. So now everybody is sort of trying to get fame attention online because you can flip it, you can monetize it, you can you can kind of do anything you with you. If if you have online attention, you can do literally anything you want. It's power online. So you can use it to launch a political career. You can use it to launch a seltzer brand. You can, you know, do whatever you want, basically. Is there something intoxicating about this economy? Is fame a kind of narcotic? You become dependent on it? Certain, certain people undeniably, and I think that's what's so kind of warped about this system, um, because we've created a system where everyone has can can sort of get the upsides of fame or ever sorry, you can very few people can enjoy the upsides of fame, like very few people are going to be the 1% of the 1% that really make it big on the internet and become multimillionaires. But everyone is enjoying the downsides of fame. So, you know, just having every part of your life documented, having hate online, having to deal with sort of public scrutiny to a level that you didn't previously, like all of these downsides that were are sort of like bad things that were associated with traditional fame in the past have been brought to everyone. And but very few people get to see the actual upside because very few people are true like Internet A-listers. There are lots of stories these days, Taylor, and I know you cover it in your book about burnt out influences, burnt out internet famous people yes. uh this was pretty inevitable isn't it wasn't it absolutely and it makes you wonder why the platforms don't take this seriously obviously they don't take it seriously because it's not in their business interest to really take it seriously they can burn through tons of users and as long as they have new users coming in and new content creators coming in they still have a you know a fresh feed of content for their platforms. But I think burnout is incredibly hard because again, this new economy is, is very unstable. People think of it as more stable because it's somewhat under your control. Theoretically, it's this dream that's sold to people of like, anybody can make it on the internet, right? You could, you too can become a content creator. All you need is your phone. It's actually incredibly hard. It's incredibly grueling. And there's no paid time off. There's no benefits. There's nothing, right? You're basically a small business owner where you're totally on your own. And as we all know, most small businesses fail, most content creators fail, right? Like it's, it's just an incredibly difficult job to have financially, psychologically, like everything about it is, is really challenging. In many ways, is this a, a winner take all economy, this new fame economy, when you think of somebody like Mr. Beast, who now has tens of millions of followers making significant revenue, he is a very successful small business. Are, are, are there moments where some of these players, some of these influencers reach a point where they can't lose uh, and there's no middle class influencer? 
Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion the past couple years just about this lack of the middle class in the content creator ecosystem. And I think it's very real. These platforms, you know, it's really only, again, that top 1% that's making the millions of dollars. But of course, YouTube and Instagram and TikTok, they use that top 1% to kind of bait everyone else to be like, look, look at Mr. Beast, you know, look at Emma Chamberlain, don't you could do what they do. Just, you know, just post content, just do, work harder, you know, put more content on the internet. The truth is almost no one can do that. It's incredibly hard. It's not just about like fame, but you have to, it's about sort of how you manage it and how you grow your career online. And the cut. it's, it's just, it's so hard. It's shocking that anybody's able to do it and then handle it and then sustain it. Even if you do get to that level, sustaining it, is incredibly hard. Look at somebody like Bobby Atoff, right? Like the podcaster who blew up after having Drake on recently. She's very viral. She was like a mommy content creator previous to that. I think she made content about her children. It's like, she's got this spotlight. She has this hype on her, but as soon as she gets attention, it's so hard to sustain it. Who knows if she'll be able to sustain it? I don't know that she will. It's been very hard. Even the past like week or two, she's, you know, admired in controversy. She has haters now. Like it's just, it's a really hard industry to sustain in. It's a me, it's your, you have to build your own media company and media companies are just notoriously hard to build and run and, and make money off of. Have you had moments where you feel you were on the verge of blowing up, of giving up the whole thing? Of quitting journalism, you mean? Well, of quitting social media. Oh, um, you know, no, because I love it. I'm a weirdo and I like, I mean, I think as a journalist. What do you mean I, you're a weirdo? What, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I would say I'm in the minority that I can, I can, um, I can sustain a lot. Like, like, I feel like I'm a boiling frog and I've been, I got on the internet early. I, I have had an online audience, a decent sized online audience since 2009. So all of the mistakes that I've made and and sort of like, things that I've had to deal with. Like, I, I'm grateful that a lot of that I've, I dealt with in the 2010s. So now that I'm in the position that I'm in now, and yes, sometimes I get extreme attention on social media or I'm getting in, admired in some controversy or whatever. Like, I think I can mentally handle it. I'm an adult. I'm in my thirties. I can, you know, I don't, I like the internet. I have fun on it every day. I think young people are not prepared. I think it's very hard. And again, it's, I had a slow growth. Like, it took me a really long time to get to where I was. It wasn't very overnight. It took over a decade for me to kind of reach where I am in my career. I think a lot of other people, especially young TikTokers, right? They're blowing up overnight. They're going from totally not, like no followers to suddenly I have this, you know, I'm a major household name to millions of teenagers within the period of three weeks. And that's what I think is really psychologically hard to deal with. And I understand why people quit. You've written a book. Uh, which is a very uh, unsocial media kind of product, extremely online, the untold story of fame, influence, and power on the internet. What did the, the book teach you about traditional media, especially a book, which is the most traditional of media versus social media? Yeah, you know, I thought like, why am I not making this a podcast? But there's something, I mean, one thing that I took away, especially from researching this book, and it took me two and a half years because I just did it on top of my job is, is how ephemeral the internet is. And I, I think I learned this already. I mean, a lot of websites that I wrote for some of my earliest articles are completely gone. I never 
backed them up at the time. I didn't realize I would have to. And those websites have been shut down or acquired and redesigned and they wiped all of our content. And so it's just the web is so ephemeral. And I, I wanted to write an internet history book that kind of told this story that I do think has been untold, which is really the user side, like a look at the rise of social media from the user side, instead of just telling the story of the rise of social media through specific platforms, which we have a lot of books that do. And um, I wanted it to be in a way that wasn't going to get, you know, like it wouldn't suffer link rot and it would, it would sort of like live on because I think the internet is so, you know, there's just so much churn and things get deleted and removed or somebody doesn't pay the server fees and suddenly it's gone. So yeah. Taylor, you mentioned Cambridge Analytica. And of course, uh, we have or we had at least the the Trump election, Brexit. W was there a moment in about 2015, 2016, when the politics blew up? You'd mentioned the Arab Spring, the promise of the Arab Spring, that promise had evaporated by 2010, 2011. But what happened in the first five years of, of the, 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 the teens that resulted in the election of Trump, Brexit, Cambridge Analytica, and the crisis uh, of social media, at least in terms of its online reputation? It's political well, reputation. Yeah, I mean, what people didn't realize is that there was this whole underbelly of the internet that was gaining power. Number one, the right-wing media has always embraced the influencer world and embraced the internet. That has been true since the beginning. So while the traditional media and corporate media has been very slow and actually very hostile to the content creator world, the content creator world and the far right, like right wing media, like Breitbart and all these places, like those have always been very tightly enmeshed. And I, there's so many reasons for that. But um, so you started to see a lot of people, a lot of far right content creators, Candace, Owen, Milo, Candace Owens, Milo Yiannopoulos, Mike Cernovich, people like this, growing power online. And YouTube was rewarding these people. Let's not forget YouTube. You know, I don't think they kicked Alex Jones off until 2018. They just allowed these people because they were pursuing growth and engagement above all else, they facilitated the rise of some really extreme content and they gave massive platforms to really extreme content creators pushing really extreme views. You also saw, again, just linking back to Gamergate, the, the rise of online misogyny and online hate and online racism and sort of like these really toxic communities that started to really effectively manipulate these social platforms and understand how to, for instance, manipulate Twitter trends or bait the media into sort of specific types of coverage. And all of that obviously culminated sort of, or really it's, I think like the Trump election was really a breakthrough moment for that. And by the way, I covered that election specifically because of this rise of all of this stuff. I was at the Hilton the night that Trump won the election, whereas many other reporters I think were at the Javits Center, they believed Hillary was gonna win. Even at Trump's election night event, there was all of these YouTubers there. There was content creators there. And I think it just showed sort of these shifting power dynamics of the on the internet and sort of who who was really in charge of the these like online spaces. And I think that YouTube, obviously Facebook, like all these platforms allowed these right wing, super right wing sort of actors to kind of manipulate their platforms for their own gain. And they still to this day allow that, by the way, they've kicked off some prominent ones, but you know, there's tons of them that are still operating on there and building audiences. Are you a supporter of regulation when it comes to social media? 
You know, I am not generally, I just, I think that we have a class of lawmakers that can barely turn their own computers on. And I, I worry about regulation because I think the only thing worse than, you know, no regulation is bad regulation that can really end up being harmful and harming free speech and, um, you know, certain forms of, of expression online. So I really worry about regulation. I don't know that regulation is like sort of the end all be all, but I do think that look, we have a, a tech system dominated by, sort of, we have monopolies, right? We have everything is face controlled by Facebook and Google. Um, and I think it's worth, you know, looking into that. But um, I, you know, I just don't know. It's It would sort of be depend on the type of legislation. A lot of people believe that January 6th was an existential crisis for American democracy. But you seem to suggest that it reflects less of an existential crisis and more a reflection of the performative qualities of social media. Where were you on January 6th and, and what did you see? Yeah, well, I was on the internet, um, like a lot of people sort of following everything. And I actually wrote about, I mean, I cover, I wrote a bunch of stories related to January 6th and the internet and sort of how it was perceived on the internet. And also I wrote a lot about um, the live streamers and how there was all these people that day monetizing their live streams and doing these interactive live streams. Like, where should I go? I'm at the Capitol, like monetizing this, their streams in real time and committing acts specifically for content or because they wanted to make more money on their live streams. This has been a problem, obviously, like these platforms, all these different platforms incentivizing different content, different forms of content. But I think January 6th was a good example of sort of like people, a lot of people doing a lot of things for the content. Obviously, they were also doing things because a lot of them, do, you know, they wrongly believed that the election was stolen. Um, but you had a ton of content creators there that were just there for sort of like the clout and the video and the views. And I think that's a sort of a unique new phenomenon, I guess, that's worth talking about. Taylor, in September 2023, where are we with social media? Lots of news recently, Instagram launch threads, Twitter has changed ownership. Some people are talking about the promise of a, a decentralized Web3 style social media. Do you see much change these days? Is there a new chapter or are we coming to the end of the history of social media? Oh, we're definitely not coming to the end of the history of social media. Again, I, I really do believe that the internet is built for connecting people and it is human nature to want to connect to people. And I, I think that that is always going to continue. But I do think that we are in this weird transitory period and we're sort of at the end of something. Like I, I ended my book in sort of 2022, 2021, 2022, because that's really when I think that, that we're like this sort of a lot of stuff flipped. Obviously you had Elon taking over Twitter now X, like I think that platform is radically shifting. You have almost like this, it's kind of unsure where things will go. You're seeing the rise of a lot of niche platforms, like sort of closed platforms. Like, Discord yeah. um, exactly. one that's interesting. And there was a big spy scandal on that recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you see people wanting to sort of restrict their social platforms. Not everyone wants to post default publicly, default permanently for the whole internet. Like that novelty of like post and you can reach anyone, everyone in the world. Like I think actually most people are like, you know, okay, I don't actually want to reach everyone in the world overnight necessarily with every post. And so I think we're seeing a shift in sort of how people view it. And also I'm very happy that people are starting to think about privacy and sort of starting to have these conversations of like, 
what are the ethics? Like, do we want to live in this world where everyone is just in a surveillance state basically because everybody's filming each other 24 seven, every time you step outside? Like, I think hopefully we can have better understandings of privacy. I'm not like holding my breath because I think who knows, but we're definitely in a transition time in social media right now. Finally, Taylor, what about AI? Some people see the beginnings of an AI chapter in the history of tech. Mm -hmm. Where is AI getting its intelligence from? Some people who have been on our show have suggested that we've revealed everything about ourselves on social media, on platforms like Reddit and Twitter and Facebook. And these generative AI systems, whether they're open AI or owned by Google or other companies, have learned to think from our social media posts. Is there any truth to that? Well, they have not learned to think very well. I will say as someone that tried to use ChatGPT to do the endnotes on my book, it's it was it failed terribly at that task. I think, um, I mean, look, I think AI is very exciting and we're in a hype cycle right now around it. But I don't think that it's like, I think we're still there very much at the early beginnings of this whole shift towards AI. I mean, AI, look, AI is the reason TikTok is so compelling, right? Is that AI generated... Um, for you page and AI algorithmic, like using AI for algorithmic recommendations. Sure, that stuff is transformative, some of these AI editing tools, but we're still, it's still so crude and it's not as far along as I think people think it is.